The Fake Show podcast is sponsored by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan. ExpandLaces.com. The Craft House Brewery, now with two locations. The Tone Factory Recording Studios. Moonshot.com. Mr. Antenna. And by Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Toffey. The Yardbirds were formed in London in 1963 with a core lineup that included vocalist and harmonica player Keith Ralph, Chris Dreja on rhythm guitar, Paul Samuel Smith on bass, and my next guest drummer Jim McCarty, and a short time later, Eric Clapton on lead guitar. In fact, the band would be a draw for other future superstar guitar players like Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. Much like the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds were greatly influenced by American blues players like Lead Belly, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and many more. And this would take them far. Please welcome Yardbirds original member, Jim McCarty, who I've got on the line right now in France. Welcome, Jim McCarty, to the program. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, Jim. We played at the Hard Rock. That was about probably three, three, four years ago. And do you know that the Hard Rock just just officially closed? Oh, no. Go there. The Virgin Hotel chain, Richard Branson, just took over the property, and it's going to be a Virgin Hotel in a few months. He's a good guy. He's English, so he's all right. <laughs> right. I thought you would approve of that. You guys are out on select dates. What What is touring like these days, and do you do many dates? I wouldn't say we do that many. <clears throat> we have sort of little, little, uh, you know, splurges or whatever. We, we play, uh, maybe come over and play half a dozen or ten dates. Uh, this one's quite short. We're only actually doing three dates on this side of the country. We, we, we did a cruise uh, just back at the end of, of January, the, the concerts uh, at sea, which is, uh, you know, off Florida. Um, which was very nice. I love your repertoire uh, and always have, and, and uh, obviously you must too because you continue on. Well, I, yeah, it, it's a sort of repertoire that seems to keep going. It seems to sound fresh all the time. It, it's quite nice if you, you're just playing like maybe 50 dates a year. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really get boring. It's just still sounds uh, it's still enjoyable to play yeah and if you wouldn't mind taking a look back a little bit at your formative years I, I was always curious as to how you met the guys Chris Paul Keith Eric were you all kind of hanging out in the same pubs and uh, so what was that like well more or less it was it was part of a scene it was in southwest London a place called uh, Kingston where we all met there was a, an art school there that um, Keith and Chris and Eric went to Paul Samuel Smith and myself. We we went to a, a grammar school, which would be you know a high school here uh, in Hampton, which was in Middlesex. So, you know, we used to hang out in this pub called the Crown, which was that um, like a semi-bohemian sort of pub, you know, where artists went and would be musicians, and and we, and we met there. We uh, initially we were going to get two bands together. Keith and Paul were already in a band uh, called the Metropolis Blues Quartet, of all, of all things. And um, Chris Blair and myself and Top uh, Topham, we were going to get another group together. And in the end, um, we sort of fused the bands together, Chris 
myself and Kate and Paul were all, were all the original Yardbirds. Obviously, you all had the same interest in R&B music, the stuff that you were hearing in America. Well, yeah, it was it was all of a sudden um, we heard it. It was like a, almost like an underground music. Um, we didn't really hear it on the radio. Uh, we used to go and see the Rolling Stones. Um, they used to play it, obviously, and um, we saw them and then there were other bands starting up. And um, initially, we took over from the Stones at their, their residency at their place called the Cordelli Club, which was in Richmond, in, in Surrey. Uh, and um, that, that was where we got our big break. And, Played there and took over, and it went from there. Yeah, I know that the when the Stones had gotten to the point where they were going to go out on tour, you guys replaced them there at the Crawdaddy. So did their audience sort of adopt you guys? Well, they did actually, and it was quite surprising because uh, you know we used to go and see them, and they had a great crowd and uh, you know queues around the block sort of thing, and they were always very good in those days. And when we played, it was a bit daunting, I must say, but they they seemed to adopt us very quickly. And I guess you know Pete looked a bit like Brian Jones, and uh, you know we right. were playing similar music, so. Uh, they took us up quite quickly. So the, as the as you guys start to uh, play at the Crawdaddy and kind of gain your own traction, at this point, Eric Clapton was still in the band? Well, he took over from Top. Uh, Top of them was the first uh, guitar player, and uh, he was younger than the rest of the band, and his parents wanted him to study. He was at an art college, and... It, Parents wanted him to study more and be actually become a, a professional artist. So he, it was difficult for him. He was coming under pressure from his parents. They didn't want him hanging around with us, you know, playing uh, all night sessions and everything. So he left the band, and um, Keith and Chris suggested Eric, who was uh, also at the art school. So he came in and uh, he got the job. And he, he played most of the gigs at the Cordelli. Jim, I have to ask you, what was it about you guys over there? It almost seemed like you went to art school and then you became a rock star. It was almost like that was the launching point. I know, it's very odd. There's so many so many other people have done the same thing. Um, not that I did, but most of those people like the Stones and the Pretty Things and the Kinks. And the, I think most of them went to art school. It was like a um, slightly... You went to art school slightly older than, than than going to high school. I think you were 13 or 14. And it was a bit of a dropout thing. You know, you, uh, it was a way of uh, sort of hanging, hanging out and, um, you know, doing nothing, I think. And just sort of wasting time and, uh, and playing music and things like that. So that's what happened, I think. There was a lot of uh, musicians going through that route. What was it that made Eric decide to leave? Were you guys becoming a little too commercial for his liking? Or I mean, what What was the crossroads there? Uh, well, we tried to, um, you know, we, we tried to record some of our stuff uh, as, uh, you know, as singles, because that, that was the name of the game back then. You had to have a a single that was going to, you know, get played on the radio and increase your your popularity. And, uh, you know, we tried various songs that we played in the set and nothing seemed to really work. The recording studios in, in England weren't quite the same as the American ones, as we, we found out 
later on. And um, we were playing with the Beatles at their Christmas show in 1964. And perhaps the publisher in the audience who had a demo of For Your Love, you know, um, written by Graham Goldman. And um, he got the demo to our manager, George Okamowski, and we had a listen. And we all liked the song except Eric. And... Eric said it was selling out, and uh, he had a few differences anyway with some of the some of the people in the band, and um, he actually decided to leave. So um, when we got Jeff Beck in the band, yeah, Ram Goulden certainly had some uh, some good pop music chops, didn't he? I mean, he had written stuff for the Hollies as well at that time. Yes, yes, some great songs. Yeah, Look Through Any Window and Bus uh, Stop, and even songs for Herman's Hermits. I think he wrote. Uh, he was very Manchester area where Herman Herman's Hermits came from as well and the Hollies so uh, they were all local guys but we were a long way away we were down in London that was that you know he did three songs that we we played in fact we'll be playing them on these dates for your love heart soul and evil hearted you we, we play all those songs Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton, what, the difference between their playing styles, especially on stage, uh, would you describe Beck as a little more of a spontaneous type of a player back in those days? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, very much playing off the top of his head. Eric had this sort of, all the blues solos worked out, you know, he was very uh, dedicated to the to the blues style and, and loved blues and was really very honourable to that sort of music. And uh, Jeff was quite different. He didn't he didn't have to play blues. He he could play all sorts of stuff, as he did with us, and uh, all sorts of really wonderful sounds, which we, we liked. And uh, it really became the basis of our, our sound as we went on. I actually had a copy of your album that you did with Sonny Boy Williamson. How how great of an honor was that for you guys to, to back him up? Well, that was fantastic. It was great fun, but of course it was very odd as well. Um, yeah. You know, he, he, he was from a, a completely different sort of color to us, and we were just like, you know, young white kids from the suburbs of London trying to, to play blues. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, you know, it was very difficult for us. And, and meeting a real sort of McCoy Lewis guy like him um, was a little odd. But he, he was very nice to us and, you know, very uh, very charming, very charming to us. And he was a lot of fun. The only problem was he used to like to drink yeah. quite a lot. So um, after we'd rehearsed, his step that we we actually recorded when we came to record you know record say the say the date he he was quite different he started to play some different songs that we hadn't rehearsed so we didn't quite know what he was going to do that's why that record sounds a bit tentative interesting i never knew that about it and i mean the plan was always for you guys to go to america all the bands were part of that British invasion if if you uh, were as good as you were. So how did that come about that you would first come over here? Uh, well, America was always, you know, it was always the dream of all the, of all the bands, you know, in England and uh, really of, of kids in England, you know, seeing all the movies and TV and uh, um, all the TV shows and all, all that stuff. It was always a fantastic thing for us to imagine. Also, it became, you know, once the Beatles had done it, it became a, quite a big market for us all. We, I think we started off as first of all we came over, we, we actually didn't have the right visas, um, not 
phone room on a date. We played a couple. Uh, we, we did a TV show in New York with Hullabaloo. Right. Um, and we played an odd odd date in the middle of nowhere, and <laughs> so, and then we ended up just uh, we, we we did some recording. Those recordings went down as uh, you know great repertoire. Uh, we did the train kept the rolling and I'm a man and yeah, the man and I in Memphis and in um, Chicago in something in um, uh, chess studios in Chicago and uh, song studios in Memphis. Uh, at last, we got a, a real great recording sound and. Um, I, I, I went down as part of our uh, really part of our repertoire. Yeah, the studios in Memphis and Chicago, which were known for some great blues recordings, right? Oh yeah, um, you know Howling Wolf, Jack Berry, you know Barry Lee Lewis, many, 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 many of those great people recorded at some and well, and Fest, I think um, Howling Wolf and um, you know Muddy Waters and all those guys they all recorded at Fest. It was such a great how the heck did Keith Ralph play harmonica and sing basically at the same time? Uh, well, he, I don't know. He, he had something or other. He, he was obviously very committed, um, but he did have uh, problems with his with his chest. In fact, uh, he had a lung wound at one point, uh, so he, you know, he was quite a, a, a weak physically guy, but he was very uh, strong mentally and always, you know, went for it made sure he put on a great show. I don't know how he did it, but um, he, he did. And he was, you know, he didn't have the strongest voice in the world, but he, he always did a great, great performance. Your song, The Shape of Things, uh, had such an incredible energy about it. And true, it's basically about the Vietnam War and what was happening at that time. Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah, that's right. And we, we recorded that in, in, in chess studios again. So it wasn't really a blues song, but that was... That was done probably at the height of our of our uh, career as a British invasion band. Um, everything was going well for us, and we wrote that song together. And um, one of those magic magic times for us, really, 1966. And that that song probably still lives on as a great as a great song. You look back and and recall how bad the sound systems were that you guys were playing on, especially with girls screaming as lovely as they did at some of these shows. <laughs> I know, I know. Most of the time, you know, when I was playing the drums, I I I just had screaming guitars in my ear. I couldn't actually hear what I was playing myself, and the drums were quite loud, you know, um, and. I, Bashing away, then I, I couldn't hear at all today. When you when you get monitor speakers and you can hear everything, but now the balance um, like it's a real a real luxury now. And also, I think it's also it's great for the audience. They're hearing a, a much better sound than was produced in the old days. I think. I love your song "Over Under Sideways Down," and it's basically it's about having a good time. And and uh, I, I'm wondering if if songwriting was kind of a group effort for you guys. Well, yeah, definitely, particularly that one. I think we all we all threw something in the pot. Um, can't remember what I did. But I think I thought up maybe some of the tunes in that and some of the ideas and then someone else would have another idea and it was at the time when we had a good rapport between us all good chemistry and it all worked really well that song and the uh, 
you know, the album that became known as Lords of the Engineer, which was right. a fun album to do. You know, that, that worked too, because we were all having fun and uh, working re really well together. Did the music come before the lyrics? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so, probably did. Maybe, maybe now and then we had some lyrics at the same time, but um, Paul Thomas Smith was, was quite good at lyrics, and he did lyrics saying I'm sad and songs like that. Um, but yeah, the music would have, would have come first, I think. How did that work? And I know it was only for a short time where Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck were both lead guitarists in the band? Yes, it, it worked pretty well sometimes, and um, other times it was quite difficult because they were they, they were competing with each other, and it sort of got a bit messy sometimes. It, you know, it, when they worked it all out, it worked really well, but if they were you know, all playing at the same time, it's a bit of a row. But um, most of the time, they'd, they'd take the time, they'd take turns with a solo and then try and outdo each other. They're very different personalities. So Jeff really plays spontaneously, as you said before. And, uh, and, and Jimmy Page, being the session man, he was in those days, you know, he played on lots of people's records. He had it all worked out. So um, he was pretty well played the same every night. So it was quite it was quite interesting to see them both playing at the same time. Was there one particular producer that you liked to work with the most? Did you have the same guy or people uh, in the years that you were together with the Yardbirds? Um, well, it always worked when when Paul was producing. I think when. He started producing with uh, with our manager Giorgio, and he was always a very good producer for us. Uh, of course, you know, being in the band as well, you know, we used on another track, we used another bass player, so he could be in the in in the sound booth. But I think that worked best for us. That uh, Paul Samuel Smith, the Kiss of Doom, really, when we went to be recorded by Mickey Most, that that really didn't work for us at all later on. When did you know that the Yardbirds were sort of done and you would be moving on? What what was happening? Uh, well, that was for Mickey Most. We were recording songs that he thought would be hit singles. You know, we were still on the hit single uh, train sort of thing. They were songs that were really not, not right for the Yardbirds at all. But he sort of had to do what he said because he was like Mr. Mr. Big Producer. But he didn't really, you know, we, we didn't really see eye to eye completely with him. You know, we've been playing the same repertoire for a long time, you know, years and years. Um, just playing on the road and we, we got very tired. And that was it. We we didn't have anything else to offer, really. What did you personally do after that? Well, after Keith, Ralph and I... Uh, decided to carry on working together. We were writing songs, and uh, we eventually, after a short time, uh, put the band Renaissance together, which was a totally different sort of group with uh, John Hawke in the sort of rock and roll keyboard player, but he he was playing, um, you know, classical piano, and uh, we introduced all sort of things uh, to the sound, and we, we, we were like an early prog rock band. Not so heavy, but a bit more... Pokey, um, a bit more varied, a bit more airport convention-ish. Um, right. Do you occasionally run into any of your former bandmates? Oh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, we, we worked with Jimmy recently on a, on getting um, uh, an old album out, which was uh, formerly called Live at the Anderson Theatre, which was recorded later in our career as a four-piece. 
and that was called Arbor 68. And we did a rerun of it and remixed it, and uh, we brought that out about two or three years ago. Yeah, we, now and then we see Jeff, and not so much Eric these days, though. But, um, yeah, we, 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 we run into each other. And you're still living in the UK? I live in France now. I'm oh. not from the UK, um, and I live down in the south, which is it, it's nice. Got a quite different peaceful sort of existence, but lots of nature, and uh, I live in a little village. It's quite different to London. London got a bit manic for me in the end. Jim McCarty, it was an honor to speak with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk to you again sometime, maybe. All right, Jim. Bye bye. Okay. And by the way, the Yardbirds were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992, and they were included at number 89 in Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.